Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why are monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. Now, first for a question from Simon, he says, does water change the direction it swirls around the plug hole depending on which part of the world you're in? Okay, this is quite an old chestnut. There is an effect there, and if you if you had a sink about you know, sort of a hundred meters across, in fact, people have done it with sinks sort of maybe about the size of a room, mm. a perfectly circular with a very small plug hole in the middle, left it there for a fortnight, and then pulled the plug out, then it will tend to swirl in one direction in the north. It should swirl anti-clockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. Basically, because the Earth is spinning, then everything on top of it is spinning as well with it. So that the stuff at the sort of north end of it is going to be going slightly slower than the stuff... So if something moves northwards, mm. um, because things at the south end are moving faster because the Earth is spinning, yeah. um, and it's further away from the, from the centre of the Earth, the axis of the Earth where it's spinning, um, it's going slightly faster because things at the equator are going faster than things at the North Pole. So the south end's going slightly faster, the north end's going slightly slower. So when they move towards the centre, the south side's going to tend to overtake and the, and the north side's going to undertake, and it's going to make things to start to spin. Mm. Now, that is an effect, and it does exist... And it definitely exists with things like cyclones, so low-pressure areas in the mm. north, northern hemisphere, they spin anti-clockwise, and the southern hemisphere, they spin clockwise. But that's, they're really big. But when you get down to the size of a normal bathroom sink, the effect is so tiny that just exact, how exactly you poured the water in, even if it was a day ago, there's still enough kind of swirl in the water to overcome this effect. Or if the tap's on one side so it all goes in swirling, or if you put your hand in and swirled it around when you were in the bath, um, that will have a much, much bigger effect than what's called the Coriolis force, which is what would be, should be making it spin in one direction or the other. Thank you very much, Dr Dave. Now then, hello to Tesco Tom, who says, why is it that mobile phones get no signal in underground car parks? It's all to do with how the signal gets to the mobile phone. They're basically, the information travels in microwaves, so basically it's a bit like flashing a light. In you know, Morse code, you can send information with Morse code by flashing a light and you can send messages that way. Uh, mobile phones do it in a similar way, but with microwaves, which are a kind of, similar kind of thing to light and radio waves, but somewhere in between. Um, they've got a wavelength of a, few, kind of a couple of centimetres. And they basically just don't go through rock very well. They go through air okay, but they won't go through rock. So if you're underground, you've got 100 yards of rock over over your head. Mm. The microwave just can't get through. Mm. They definitely won't go through metal. Metal will screen them very well. So if you're in a building with lots of metal around you, you'll get a very weak signal. Mm. Which is a good thing because your microwave oven, which is cooking your food in your kitchen, you don't want the microwaves to get out and cook you. So metal's very good at keeping it in. Mm. So basically the microwaves can't get through the rock, so you can't get the signal through. In general, the longer the wavelength, the better it will go through things like rock. So you may have noticed with um, FM signals, they won't go very far around the Earth, and if you get behind a hill, it tends to disappear. Mm. But if you're using medium wave or long wave, which are much longer wavelengths, then it tends to go around corners better. Yeah, they bounce. And and it'll go through the rock slightly better. So if you're in the bottom of a valley, you might be able to pick up a long wave radio station, but not a VHF FM one. Mm, all right. We've got Bernie on the phone. Hello, Bernie. Hello. How are you? Oh, feeling a bit better. Oh, good. You're through to Dr. Dave. Quite a simple one, really. You, you look up in the sky and you see all these stars. Yeah. Millions of miles away. And 
the light travelling from the stars to Earth, does it degrade, and if so, how much? By degrade, what do you mean? Well, does some of that light get lost on the way? In um, those, say, four million... A bit million will... Million I mean, if it goes to a ga- dust cloud or a gas cloud, then that will absorb some of the light. Yeah. Um, but the fact that we can see them means that not that much of it um, has got lost. I mean, normally if you've got if there's a dust cloud in the way, then you can't really see the stuff behind it particularly. Yeah. What does happen to light if it's come from a very, very long, long distance away, which means a very long time ago, because it's taken a long time to travel to us? Is it because the universe has, has expanded in that time? The light has also been stretched? Stretched. So it sort of gets stretched. So the wavelength, originally it was shorter, so the bluer, bluer end. And then as, as it travels and the universe sort of stretches, then it gets redder and redder and redder, oh. which is called the redshift. And the further away we look, the more redshifted everything is because the universe is expanding. And if you look right, the furthest back which we can go to, which is very soon after the Big Bang, what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. This is, if you look in, up in the sky, you see sort of microwaves, very cold, micro, low-energy cold microwaves look, coming at you from all directions. But originally those were X-rays, ah. X-rays or gamma rays. <laughs> and the universe has expanded so much uh, by sort of billions and billions of times that they've been stretched all the way to microwaves. Amazing. So I'm not sure if that's quite degrading, but it's definitely, it change, does change over change, a long time yeah. as the universe expands. It's, it's just amazing to me that you can look up in the sky and see sort of light from stars that it, it left them the time Victoria was on the throne or something like oh, that. Long, long, long yeah. before that. You can, if you can look up into the sky and see light from galaxies which were there before, which left before the Earth actually existed. Good it's grief. mind-blowing, isn't it? Yes, it gives my brain cell an exercise that I'm just even trying to think about oh. <laughs> Bernie, thank you very much indeed. Okay, cheers. Thank you. Uh, Mike in Colchester says he's heard that the real reason passengers are told to turn off mobile phones on planes is not safety, but because thousands of mobile phones in on mode flying at low altitude would mess up the mobile phone transmitters below. Is that correct, Dave? I don't know if it's the real reason. I mean, there was definitely a big worry that mobile phones originally could interfere with sort of navigation systems on planes, which if you're high up and you've got lots of time to deal with it, wouldn't be a problem. If you're low down, that could be a problem. I think all planes which have been built kind of since the advent of mobile phones have kind of pretty much been designed to take the radiation which mobile phones will give out, the microwaves which mobile phones will give out. But a lot of our planes are still 30, 40 years old, so you're not quite sure how they're going to behave in every situation if you didn't design them to be able to cope with it. Nothing worse than being on a plane and somebody being on the phone. And it would be very, very annoying. But there is a big issue with mobile phones interfering with mobile phone masts on the Mm. ground. Yeah. Because essentially, sort of mobile phones, they they use up a sort of a frequency. If they're transmitting, they use up a bit of a frequency. Mm. And if you're down on the ground, um, it only uses up that frequency for how, basically how far you can see. Because the mobile phone's pretty much going a straight line. They go through sort of small buildings and things, but not through any rocks. So it's about as far as you can see. So maybe only a few, you know, five five or six miles, you use up that kind of frequency space, roughly approximately sort of concept. But if you fly up on a plane, um, your horizon is a hundred miles or so. Mm. So you can use that that frequency space and cause interference on that frequency over most of Britain at once. And so if you have a thousand mobile phones up up in planes, you could kind of cause serious problems for the whole mobile phone network. Yeah, I think they should be taken and confiscated (laughs) as you get on on and off the plane. Dennis is in Cambridge. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Now then, what's your question about Dr Dave? Good evening, Dr Dave. Good evening. I'm very much interested in these commercial satellite navigation gadgets. Yeah. 
I'm interested in how they work. And what intrigues me most of all is how good they are. I mean, they're accurate within about a metre or two, aren't they? Do they communicate with a computer on Earth? Um, what they, the way they work is the Americans have put up a whole series of satellites which orbit the Earth. Yeah. There's, I don't know, there's somewhere between 10 or 20 of them, at least. Yeah. They're orbiting quite low. Um, they've worked out, they know their orbits very, very accurately. And these basically send out timing signals. So they'll send out a code, and then it's a whole series of pulses. It's actually quite complicated as to how they build the pulses so you can work out exactly where you are. Yeah. And because the time these radio pulses take to get from the satellite to you will be different depending on how far the satellite is away because the signal travels at the speed of light. Yeah, yeah. If all of the satellites sent out a pulse exactly the same time, you can measure the difference in time between all the different satellites. And from that, you can work out the difference in distance between all the satellites. And then you can kind of do the sort of the plotting. Uh, it does the plotting in, its, in the computer and it can work out where you are. Where is the computer then, Dr. Day? There is a computer inside the satnav. Oh, um, I see. So the satellites can absorb all the detail they need. Uh, the satellites are just transmitting to you. They, they're transmitting, um, they basically send a, a pulse every kind of um, probably billionth of a second. Yeah. Um, and a slightly different one every millionth of a second or whatever, so that each time you get one of these pulses, you can work out when it was sent from this satellite and which satellite sent it. Yeah, I see. Then the little computer inside your satnav system listens for all the different pulses coming from all the different satellites, and it measures the difference in time between them. Yeah. So if one's a long way away and one's close, you can work out the distances between them, and you can work out where you are from those distances. So are the maps stored inside the satnav itself then yeah and then the map is stored inside the satnav the gps which is a positioning system just works out where you are and then you have a map inside the satnav which is sold to you with the satnav inside the computer of the satnav of the yeah. whole country and then it just plots where you are on on top of that map thank you very much indeed thank you dennis thank, thank you bye-bye bye Um, now, there's a fantastic question in here from Gus in Little Bassingham. He sent an email. For some time now, many climatologists have suggested that there is a definite casual link between the warming up of the Earth's atmosphere and the emissions of CO2. However, the average global temperature between 1940 and 1975 decreased, while CO2 concentrations during the same period increased rapidly. Therefore, is it not safe to assume that any computer models combining these linked phenomena will invariably predict different forecasts of climate change according to which data is used. And in reality, most of the current warming is more likely to be linked to natural causes such as weather pattern cycles and variations in solar activity. And that's mankind's contribution to this change is either insignificant or only marginal. Gus asked this because under the Manhattan Declaration of March the 4th, 2008, 500 scientists, economists, policymakers and business leaders declared global warning is not a global crisis and recommended that all taxes, regulations and other interventions intended to reduce emissions of CO2 be abandoned forthwith. Uh, that's what he's put there. I, yeah. I have no proof that that is actually so. So we're taking um, what Gus has found uh, looking at that and he's obviously very interested. Temperature has gone up and down. It does naturally go up and down. 10,000 years ago, the temperature here was like somewhere in north um, Sweden and the temperature has been rising. It was naturally cold sort of during the 
18th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. And they were having sort of ice parties on the Thames. Thames would freeze so hard that you could go and light bonfires on it and they wouldn't burn through. Mm. But we are fairly sure that carbon dioxide will warm up the world. The bit between 1945 and 1975 is quite interesting because I think that was quite related to other kinds of pollution we were giving out. Because when we're burning lots and lots of coal, Mm. that releases lots of sulphur. And sulphur, when it comes out of the chimney, tends to form little tiny, tiny, minute particles. And some of them kind of stay low and get caught by rain and create acid rain and kill forests in Sweden, although possibly mm. not as much as we thought they did. And others get lifted really high up into the atmosphere and they, act, they reflect the sun and they actually cool the world. But since we've stopped burning as much coal and been burning much cleaner fuels, this kind of masking effect, which is cooling the world slightly, has been overwhelmed by the bigger underlying effect of the carbon dioxide warming it up. I mean, there is still a bit of an argument as to how much of the warming was due to the carbon dioxide, how much of it is possibly due to a bit of a natural warm-up going on anyway. I think scientists are fairly sure that if you carry on burning carbon dioxide, the world is going to get warmer because even if now it's not necessarily all of the effect, if you burn 10 times more carbon dioxide, you are going to create a problem, whatever happens. I personally think doing something about it is a good idea. Apart from anything else, if we keep on burning oil at the rate we are, we're going to run out of oil and we're going to have to find something to do with it. And I think there's all sorts of other good reasons for trying to move away from fossil fuels. Like we're starting to run out of them in nice, friendly countries Mm. um, like Britain, America and so all, most of them are now concentrated in the countries which have been so unstable no one's bothered trying to get them out of before and sort of there's lots in the middle east and russia and there's some some up in the um, arctic but mm. i think people are fairly sure there has been effect by now and even if it's less than the natural effect if we carry on the way we are going it's going to have an effect and it is going to create huge problems before yeah. she was saying it was acid rain, yeah. um, then it was ozone, and now it's CO2 emissions. <laughs> there are these buzzwords that yeah. carry through. And as um, the last line of what Gus has sent here, all taxes, regulations and other interventions intended to reduce emissions of CO2 to uh, be abandoned forthwith. Because yeah. I mean, the ozone th- thing basically, um, globally, I mean, that's actually one of the almost coming towards the success stories. Globally, we have incredibly cut down the production of the ozone-destroying chemicals and the ozone hole still might be growing a little bit, but it's kind of starting to fluctuate, getting bigger and smaller. It's starting to level off the growth of it. So we've managed to do something positive. That is fantastic. (laughs) All right, um, we've got um, Maureen, who's on the telephone. Hello, Maureen. Hello. From from Norwich. Yes. Uh, Your question to Dr Dave is? Uh, Well, my grandchildren asked me this the other day, and I didn't know the answer. They said, uh, why can... Caterpillars eat stinging nettles and butterflies can land on stinging nettles and they don't get stung and we do. I think the way a stinging nettle works is it's got lots of little um, tubes that are really sharp tubes like hypodermic syringe. It's actually made out of silica, so they're made out of it's the same sort of stuff as quartz. Right. Um, and they're actually arranged around the outside edge of the, of the leaf. The outside edge of it. So you know where the the leaf has kind of got all these little kind of points? Yes. At the end of each of those points, there's a a little kind of spike on it. It's a hypodermic syringe. Ah. And then if that jabs into you, uh, it will inject some poison into you. And that's what causes the rash and why it hurts. Um, And you can actually pick up stinging nettle leaves if you don't touch the edges. So you can kind of grab them and you can actually roll them into... Some people even eat them raw um, without stinging themselves because if you roll them up into a ball with all the sharp 
bits pointing inwards, then you can eat it and you can kind of break them up before they inject you. And it's not a problem. Apparently they've got quite a, quite a tangy flavour because mm-hmm. there's quite, quite a, I think it's an acidic acidic poison in them and it actually makes them quite tangy. I've, not, I've never make tried eating them all before. You can't make tea out of them. Um, and so as long as caterpillar doesn't kind of crawl along the edge, which would be quite difficult, and how if a butterfly, a butterfly will tend to land on the middle, it'll be fine. It's just if it kind of crashes into the side, it'd be a problem. So they know if they avoid the edges, they'll be okay. Yeah, and probably, actually, if you've got something as small as definitely a butterfly, it probably couldn't even hit them hard enough for it to go through, because butterflies have got quite a strong oh. outer body, haven't they? Uh, the exoskeleton is quite so strong. they could land on them and it wouldn't pierce them. Even if they did, but mostly they're not going to land where the needles are. Thank you so much. I can explain that to them now. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Right, let's get back to these um, sat-navs then. Simon has picked up on the question. He's saying about um, how do the machines work regarding speed camera positions as his bleeps as a camera is approaching? The old-fashioned ones, which were designed to try and stop you getting caught by speed cameras, the way the, the, especially the older speed cameras work, is they send out, a, a again, a microwave beam. There's a lot of microwaves today for some reason. Send a microwave beam towards your car. Yeah. And if it gets reflected off your car, if your car's moving towards it, the pitch, the, 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 the wavelength of this microwave beam will get slightly shorter in the same way as if a car's coming towards you, the pitch gets higher. Then as it goes away from you, the pitch gets lower, mm. which is an effect called the Doppler effect. So the, the wavelength, essentially the pitch of this microwave beam changes slightly and from that change you can work out how fast your car was going. So the old-fashioned ones used to detect the microwaves and so if, if they saw some microwaves up ahead they'd say there's a speed camera about somewhere. The problem is that if you're not careful by the time it notices, notices the speed camera was coming out you'd already been caught. I think the sat-nav ones he's talking about, oh, I've definitely seen on some roadmaps these days, I've just got a map of all the speed oh, yeah, cameras yeah, in the country. Yeah. So I think um, in your sat-nav, the, it's got a map inside it already, so it'd be very easy to just add positions of all the speed cameras in the country onto that map. Yeah. So if the computer inside your sat-nav works out that you're coming, you're approaching a speed camera, it just tells it to bleep. So it's just, I mean, in the same way as it can have all of the petrol stations in the country drawn on it so you know where to go to get petrol, it can have all the speed cameras on. I guess so. Um, I mean, how much are we using as far as, like, you know, car emissions and, and electricity and, and planes? I mean, they, how how worried should we be about all these things? I mean, I think electricity that we use is about a third of all the energy we use. This is numbers off the top of my head. Yeah. I think they're, they're quite rough. Transport, maybe about another third, and then sort of heating and running houses and industry maybe somewhere sort of another third but possibly transport a bit less than that um i think air flights at the moment are only a few percent but they're growing very very rapidly and if, if you kind of extrapolate the growth for another 20 years then it will start being a really significant portion of the energy we're using that's it for this week our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>